Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, China's answer to Amazon, is a regular Chinese success story. He's first on China's rich list and twenty-first on Forbes's list of most powerful people in the world. But has he flown too close to the sun now? In the last five years, a jewel in Ma's crown was Ant Group, the financial services company that spun off from Alibaba. You might know it as AliPay. But these days, Ant is about much more than just easy digital payments. The launch of its Huabei, meaning just spend, and Jiebei, just borrow, functions a few years ago have moved it solidly into the fintech sector. Alipay now has one billion users, and it was on the cusp of going onto the stock market. It would have been pulling off the biggest initial public offering ever, with a listing that was valued to raise thirty-seven billion dollars, and a valuation that would have been bigger than even J.P. Morgan. It would have been a homegrown organic national champion in the fintech world, a nod to the prowess of Chinese tech startups. But on the eve of going public, a dramatic eleventh-hour intervention from the very top of the Chinese Communist Party scuppered everything. New regulations were rushed into place, and now Ant Group's IPO faces a six-month delay, if not more. Speculation is running wild that the flamboyance of Jack Ma irritated the wrong people in Beijing. So, what exactly happened? Well, joining me now is Duncan Clark, author of Alibaba: The House That Jack Ma Built, and head of BDA China, the investment advisory firm that he founded in Beijing in 1994. Hi, Duncan. Welcome back to the podcast. Duncan, to start with, I wondered if you can give listeners a taste of what Ant Group does in its financial services. I mentioned in my introduction Huabei and Jiebei, these two colloquially named terms meaning just spend and just borrow, functions on the AliPay app. Just spend is similar to a traditional credit card, and just borrow are small unsecured loans made through the app. Yeah, well, it's, it's really sort of a financial supermarket, much as、uh, you know we hear about super apps these days, and I think Alibaba has you know super app, if you will, for. For e-commerce, Ant really growing from AliPay, as you mentioned, has opened up many new aisles in the supermarket, from lending to credit to all kinds of、uh, consumer-friendly, gamified almost financial products, making it very easy for consumers to access a wider range of financial products than they've had in the past from the banks. And that that comes in an environment of China's loans being quite difficult for ordinary people, small, medium-sized businesses to get. Is that right? Yes, I mean China's history really over the last few decades has been one of what it's called in the industry financial repression. That ultimately you've had state-owned banks taking deposits from individuals, offering、uh, pretty much low rates of interest, and lending that money typically to state-owned enterprises. This is the repression that you basically collect from the consumers and then you give out money to connected state-owned enterprises. That's That's a long story. Obviously, the, the the state has a very dominant role in the financial sector, and what technology has done over the last、uh, decade, but increasingly the last few years, is kind of open up new channels for consumers to actually have choice in the way that they save their money or the way they borrow money. And so, typically in the past, these state-owned banks never actually lent money to individuals, or often never lent money to small companies because they were very focused on large state-owned enterprises. And when you think about state-owned enterprises in China, they often, of course, they all have a sort of superstructure of management, which is the Communist Party officials that staff both 
the enterprises themselves and also the banks that would lend to them. And so it was actually quite difficult for big state banks to even understand a small business or certainly an individual and take the risk. Why would they bother when they were really focused on something else? Mm. And so I think this change in, uh, in technology allowing you know, assessment of individuals and small businesses is, is sort of a, a revolution in the financial industry. And it's happening around the world, obviously, that the amount of transactions that we conduct online allow technology firms to get a better sense of who we are. So that's very uh, disruptive for the uh, traditional Chinese financial system. But the transition from the old way of doing it to the new way is not going to be easy, as we've discovered. Yes. So, so Duncan, can you tell us what happened this week? So basically, at, as you said, the 11th hour, I mean, screech of brakes. <laughs> I mean, people have described this as a, as a plane that was al- already kind of lumbering down the runway. Um, traffic, air traffic control had actually given clearance to take off because these, this IPO had been approved by the financial regulator just a few weeks earlier. But at the very last minute, you know, the plane was told to to not take off. <laughs> but a lot of uh, passengers and, and cargo were on board and were shaken up very much <laughs> by this screeching brakes. Um, it was a very dramatic intervention. Nobody saw it coming uh, because it had been assumed that with this green light that was given a few few weeks earlier, that it was an inevitable transaction that was happening and also a big success. There was so much anticipation from individual investors as well as institutions in as evidenced by this massive oversubscription where you know maybe 800 times more uh, demand than, than supply of, of shares in the in the Chinese stock market and, and global interest as well I assume yeah it, it was interesting in a number of levels because this IPO would have been the world's largest as you said but also it would have been in Hong Kong and Shanghai it was not including a typical you know New York component and don't forget Alibaba itself had gone public in New York in 2014, not in Hong Kong. And so given the US-China tension and rivalry, let's say, you know, this would have been a very symbolic offering to have the world's largest IPO without accessing directly at least the US capital markets. There were a lot of US institutions and global institutions buying into this company, and some of them were already shareholders. But the fact that this wasn't happening on the bourse in New York was symbolic, really, of this potential shift in global capital markets towards a more China-centric world. Mm. What the regulators did was that they decided in the last minute that uh, when it comes to consumer loans, the the organisation that is lending that, making that loan, has to leverage 30% of that funding from its own balance sheet, whereas Ant Group had been doing it at about 2%, getting the rest of the funding from commercial and state banks as well. So it essentially wasn't taking on as much of the risk. Now, Duncan, why do we think that this happened? A lot of speculation is going around that it's because Jack Ma took a shot at the regulators in a speech where he called them too repressive, and he just got a bit too big for his boots. Yeah, so I mean, there was this fateful speech, it seems, that Jack gave at this summit, Bun Summit in Shanghai, where he followed, uh, I think also Wang Qichan, you know, I think he was spoke by video, if I understand correctly, from Beijing, so we had a mix of party and government officials and private sector individuals speaking at this conference. Firstly, it was a little odd that any you know significant figure connected to Ant would actually give a speech in the days running up to an IPO, because typically, yeah, I'm a former investment banker, we would have this period where you call it a quiet period, as you would also before you were issuing results for a company, you basically don't want to talk too much in case you say something wrong <laughs> about a big company about to go public or about something big about to happen with the company. Jack, of course, you know, famously is trying to not be in management of both Alibaba and even Ant. But of course, he is the power behind the throne for Alibaba and for Ant. I mean, he basically created both. 
So the question is, you know, what was he, what was his point in speaking at this conference? And I think there's some classic Jack Ma going on in this, that he's a great, great communicator, a great performer, and he likes to kind of thrill and excite the audience. And he, it sounds like he got a bit carried away by speaking truth to power in a way which is rather too direct. And what some of the things he said, I, you know, diagnosis, both of the international financial system and the domestic have a lot of uh, truth in them. I mean, saying things that perhaps, you know, the Basel way in which we regulate financial risk globally is is outdated. But I think he probably didn't put enough of a firewall between his comments on the international financial system and the Chinese system. And there he was, you know, in the room, there were current and former, very senior regulators from the financial system. So I think it was ill-advised probably to make light or even critique directly those regulators. Mm. And, and that the Perhaps because there was a sense of inevitability about this IPO. I mean, you know, we'd already seen the level of interest. We'd seen the green light earlier for the transaction. But again, the plane hadn't taken off yet. So it seems that this, we don't know exactly how much it was Jack's speech itself mm. that prompted this reaction versus, for example, another factor might have been the sheer success of the public interest in this stock in China, where we saw people borrowing money, often through funds, many of them online, in a sense, showing that maybe Ant was a victim of its own success. I mean, this sort of new sector that is supercharged, this what they call tech fin, or what we call fintech, has become so powerful that it made regulators uneasy, that if there was so much interest in buying into this company, what did that say for what would happen after the company had all this cash and was able to roll out even further these products? So it could have been the sheer interest in the stock, I think probably the speech did have some role. And from some conversations I've had with people kind of in that world of financial regulation, it does seem that that speech really did rub people the wrong way. Mm. I've also watched some Chinese commentary, uh, some of it from Taiwan as well, which of course is a country sharing a language and so following Chinese politics often quite closely as well, which says that, you know, part of it is understandable because Jiebei, the um, just borrow part of Ant Group's operations can be a bit unscrupulous in giving these unsecured loans to people without any collateral being offered and just based on their credit worthiness of, of their using Alipay. And so there's a risk of bad loans being lent out and that sort of thing. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Well, I think firstly, China at the moment, the economy, uh, you know, is recovering very quickly from the crisis of this year. You know, there's a lot of optimism. I mean, China's the only G20 economy to be growing this year. So in a sense, now is not the best time to assess whether this approach is, is working or not. I mean, as you know, Warren Buffett famously said, you know, you only can see who's naked when the tide runs out, goes out. Right? We don't know how um, the, these algorithmic-based lending practices will perform in a big downturn. And, you know, every economy goes through a boom and bust cycle and, and, and credit is part of that. So it's a little risky to assume that somehow algorithmic lending is superior, even if you have this massive amounts of uh, data from, say, small merchants that are selling lots of things online, giving confidence to a lender that this will you know, continue and there'll be good credit. We don't know. So it, it was basically the role of financial regulation is, is very important and also quite boring in the sense it's basically to avoid instability. Mm. Because Without financial stability, all bets are off on everything else, right? I mean, if you haven't, this is the, the core of good governance is to ensure there's not runaway inflation, there's not uh, bubbles, 
and speculation. And China is quite prone to that. We've seen that in the property market. We've seen that in the stock market. And so the big question is, yeah, how much faith can we put in the uh, sort of this new approach? And, and should that be on, on a sort of tighter leash, as it seems to be the case, or given free run and free access to capital to even challenge major banks? And of course, the capitalization of this company and would have exceeded that of any U.S. bank, even though its revenues were much smaller. You know, you think about, I think it's $18 billion in revenues, but they were looking at a valuation of $350 billion plus, which is bigger than, you know, say Citibank mm. with, you know, five times the revenues. So, so in a sense, there was Why this- Why is that? You know, is that a bubble effect? Well, it comes back to these words tech and fin. As we've seen in the tech world, the idea of being a platform like Uber, if you think about Uber, disrupting transportation and not calling themselves a transportation company. The drivers on Uber, as actually was confirmed in California uh, last week in, in the election, are not considered employees of the company. So as a result, this idea of having, if you will, off balance sheets or asset light kind of businesses, which basically just connect supply and demand. That's what Alibaba did. Um, that's what Uber has done in transportation. But in the financial world, when you're just becoming a platform to connect, say, even often state banks, with consumers to make loans or credit and and not provision capital for that. As you said, if you're only putting 2% yourself against that transaction, what happens in a big downturn? This Mm. does give people some PTSD, right, from 2008 when we were, you know, collateralizing loans and you were basically disconnecting the financial intermediation process so that the platform itself claims to have no knowledge or involvement. You know, these tech firms clearly have done a great job in identifying and exciting sort of consumers. But when they try to not have responsibility or minimize the responsibility in any of the bad stuff that might happen from that, that's when regulators, of course, are are keen to sort of intervene. And that seems to be what has happened here. Mm. Duncan, how should we be interpreting this? It's really getting to the crux of what you're saying here. You, you suggesting that Ant Group is a fintech firm and it, you know it's almost usual for regulators to be seeking to clip its wings a little bit. But we've also talked on this podcast before, me and you, about how independent Chinese companies really are from the politics of the country and the government of the country. It seems that in this case, the directive probably came directly from President Xi. There's a lot of Western analysis at the moment, for example, calling this a party political move that is an authoritarian state looking to clamp down on the private sector. But is there another way of looking at it, which is just that in the same way as fintech is disrupting things in the West and regulators are looking to regulate it, you know, it's much more understandable in that way. Which one do you think it is? Or could it be both? I I think it is more the, the latter than the former, but they are linked. I mean, clearly, I mean, in a sense, China itself has a inbuilt kind of institutional memory, if you will, of the chaos that can emerge with, say, runaway inflation or runaway corruption. I mean, to some extent, the People's Republic of China was really founded on the basis of you know, a previous republic that actually had runaway inflation, runaway corruption, of course, leading to civil war and so on. But much like we think of Germany as being, you know, perhaps within the European context, people tend to think of German central bankers as being overly prudent, of being only until recently keen to allowing, you know, Southern European countries to access credit in the, in the crisis, etc. So I think similarly, when you look at China, you have to understand the context of the role of, of the party in ensuring stability and the sort of agreement with large parts of the population that instability is very damaging, whether it be political or economic. 
And that's sort of the inbuilt deal that, you know, people, and we, we to some extent feel that now in the public uh, health environment in China, when we look at the rest of the world, stability is everything for the party mm. and for the people's interest, basically, in supporting and working with the party, which we don't know the exact popularity, but basically, when it comes to avoiding instability, there is general consensus that that's a good thing, right? So now, at the same time, the private sector itself has been introducing a lot more growth and efficiencies into wide areas of the economy. And Alibaba famously did that to the retail sector, right? So previously, you had very inefficient, state-owned you know, shops and distribution. And of course, this had started to change before Alibaba came along, but it was the internet that really supercharged the ability for consumers to access more products and for, and for producers to actually access more consumers, both in China and abroad. So the internet has been a good thing for revolutionizing retail. We've seen that in the West, but it's even more powerful in China. But when it comes to finance, it's a different regulatory environment because finance is so central to the whole economy. It is, you know, again, perhaps an issue of Ant being a victim of its own success in the level of excitement that it kind of generated with this offering, illustrating there is huge amount of pent-up demand for more diversified savings and, and higher rates of return. But in the past, that's also led to you know, bubbles, whether it be through curbside lending or property. And, and so it makes the government nervous mm. to see this level of excitement in something which is supposed to be more boring, you know, like the financial sector. <laughs> and Duncan, what have other tech magnets, for example, the leaders behind TikTok and WeChat made of this? Has this been damaging to business confidence? There's a phrase in Chinese, which is to kill the rooster in order to warn the monkeys, as in setting an example. Is that what this has been doing, to set an example to other tall poppies? Well, I mean, certainly the last minute intervention came with a cost to the reputation of uh, China in terms of the capital markets, right? I mean, so to have this last minute intervention on something that was going to be an iconic sort of showcase IPO did surprise and unnerve investors. Of course, this IPO will happen in some future shape, but it probably will be quite a long time down the road. It could be six or 12 months and it could be much smaller and in a different form. So it's not like the existing investors lost everything. They, you know, they will get a healthy return, I'm sure, but it's a time value of money. This has been pushed off further, which makes you think, well, there must have been an even bigger cost that the government was worried about to actually kind of inflict this self-damage, if you will. And that comes back to this question of financial stability. So I think it's this level of, yes, there may have been some short-term cost, but the concern was that the longer term cost would have been much greater for letting it go ahead. I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, I don't know anything on the inside on this, but we do. We have seen some statements from those connected to the central banks saying that it was a fear of, of instability or, or speculation that prompted this move. And Duncan, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that it was classic Jack Ma to really do that performance to be high profile. You've met him numerous times and you've had in-depth conversations with him, which you write about in your book. Can you talk a little bit about what Jack Ma is like? For Chinese people, I'm sure he's a regular success story having come from nothing in the 90s. But recent years, you've seen much more flamboyance coming from him. You've got these annual Alibaba employee concerts uh, in which he's performing to pop songs for the company. And, you know, we can hear a little bit now. This was his performance at stepping down from the chairmanship of Alibaba last year. When I'm down and oh my susu worry 
When troubles come, and my heart burden be, then I must do, and we hear in the silence until you come and sit while with me. I mean, that's just incredible. Is he just really flamboyant, or just、um, getting really into what it's like to be a business magnate? Oh, I wouldn't say he's flamboyant in the sense of the way he dresses or anything. But he's he's a very colourful personality. He's very humorous. He's very engaging, and he's very committed to his base, if you will, to use a Western term, which is the merchants, the the entrepreneurs, the individuals. You know, he's populist in a way. That he often speaks of things that really matter to people. So, in, in when he founded Alibaba, it was all about helping merchants access markets. You know, there were merchants who were producing stuff but didn't know how to export them because they didn't speak English or they didn't know about the internet. And later on, he was able to help brands connect to Chinese consumers and help Chinese consumers access, you know, new products and then finance. And, you know, so he his he's very committed to. The little guy, right? This is why the choice of ant as a as a symbol, right? The small, you know, on its own, seems very small, but by working together, you know, they're going to have a huge impact. It's a story of the emerging middle class in China. So he gets quite excited about that story, and it is an exciting story. It's actually been not just through him, but the the rise of consumption and the middle class in China has completely transformed this country. In a way, people seek him out because you know, I think there's a cultural context that's worth understanding that. One, he was an entrepreneur who, unlike many other entrepreneurs in the early days of the internet, he did not go to MIT or Harvard or Stanford. He famously had been an English teacher in China. He had failed a number of times to even get into the teacher training college he went to. He failed in a few businesses before he launched Alibaba. So Jack was a very different in the way that he actually wore his failures on his sleeve in a way. So, what do you think is going to happen now? You say that it might be six months or twelve months for this IPO to come back. Do you think that's a given? If it has to comply with these regulations, that say thirty percent of its loans have to come from its own balance sheet, that's pretty. That's a high jump from two percent. Right. So, you know, if you're going from a world where a tech firm is very valued to twenty times sales or something, and a finance firm is valued at two, then of course the more finance you become, and there's just rough numbers, but The valuation is going to be lower, right? I mean, if you had to provision more capital, you need to raise more capital, but actually, you're going to be valued at lower than you had been previously expected to be valued. And so, yeah, I mean, they have to at least six months. I would say they have to let things cool down. They probably have to either dispose of a business or they have to fund a business in a new way, and they have to come back to the market in a new way. So. It may be that they don't come back. I don't know. I'm speculating, but maybe they don't want to have a Chinese individual, you know, shareholder、mm. appeal for this next offering. Because to some extent, the fact that they're they were allowing individual investors in China to buy into this company may have caused some of the problems. There were a lot of institutional、uh, investors, so big pension funds, both in you know internationally and in China, who had bought into this company. Some of them are already shareholders, including elements connected to the or funds connected to the Chinese state. So there was a ton of institutional support for this offering, but there was also what we call this retail offering, this individual ability for individual shareholders to bid for shares.、Uh, if they were lucky, they would get their shares, and so you saw this massive speculation and people borrowing money to try to, you know, boost up the amount of shares they were bidding, so they would be cut back less. And so, <laughs> so maybe 
this uh, going to the domestic market will not be priority, which is a shame, really, because China actually needs quality companies to go to market to help develop its domestic stock market. It's a little bit like Thatcherite economics in the sense if you think about Telsid with British Gas or you know, with BT, these offerings that basically were privatizations in the UK that helped kind of develop a shareholder base in the UK. And that was a big part of Thatcher's economic legacy. To some extent, there is a need for Chinese individuals to access higher quality companies on the Chinese stock markets. Previously, you know, all these high flying tech companies like Tencent or Alibaba were actually listed not in the mainland. They were listed in Hong Kong or New York and uh, or some combination of the two. And so <clears throat> over time, it's inevitable that there will be more companies listed within China instead of the mostly state-connected companies or state-owned companies that really dominate the Chinese stock exchanges. So anyway, they, you could both develop the Chinese stock market and develop these companies at the same time. That was the promise. But the level of interest that we've seen is so high for individuals to buy into potentially higher growth companies that you know, demand just got too far ahead. Yeah, I guess it's still too big a leap from socialism with Chinese characteristics to Thatcherism <laughs> in one yeah, job. Yeah, no, Thatcherism, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it, I mean, that, it was a revolution, obviously, for Thatcher to allow consumers of products to buy shares in those products, even if those were state offerings, you know, like like telecoms and gas. And actually, the Chinese government is allowing quite opening, uh, a quite strong opening of the market to foreign financial institutions at the moment, including U.S. institutions. We talk about the U.S.-China you know, trade war and tensions. Actually, there's quite a lot of interesting things happening with U.S. funds uh, being able to launch products on their own in China, often without a partner or take majority control of ventures that they already have. So China needs more financial choice uh, for savers. But how this happens, if it happens too quickly and if it's in the hands of high profile entrepreneurs, they're a bit nervous about. And that that's, seems to be a challenge at the moment. Do you think that Ant Group's success and the need to bring them back down will contribute to state banks also opening up a bit more to the individual, loosening up that financial environment? Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, I mean, I, I use a bank called China Merchants Bank, which is a state-owned bank based out of Shenzhen. It's actually very good. I mean, I would compare it favorably to any other bank that I use mm-hmm. in, in the West. And that's, you know, they were an innovator themselves through technology. And actually, I would say most of the Chinese banks now, because of the you know, influence and expectations of uh, consumers towards these, you know, tech firms like Alibaba and WeChat, they've had to change already a lot. Mm. And yet they still remain, you know, it's very difficult for banks globally to adjust to the challenge of technology. Think about how much property they own, how many people they employ. And we've seen that, you know, for example, earlier this year when when China was reeling from the impact of, of the pandemic on its own economy, Banks are often the first place you go to to say, look, you need to take on these new graduates because, you know, China needs to create, I forget what it is, six or eight or 10 million jobs a year for graduates, you know. And so the banks are a tool for the states to create employment, to absorb, you know, yeah. um, and also to to direct lending that they want to sectors that they're favoring. So inevitably, yeah, the banks have been adjusting. Even if you look back to 1999, 2000, when WTO, I think China joined in 2001, WTO, but it was interesting at that time. The Chinese government said, "Look, be careful, you know, Chinese banks. We will allow foreign banks in to compete with you if you're not careful." In the end, there's precious little presence of foreign banks in China. It's a microscopic percentage today, but it was the fear of using foreign banks as a tool that helped them drive some reforms. And I think the same is true of technology. They can, you know, lean on the Chinese banks and say, "You know, look, these tech firms are coming. They want to do stuff." 
show us what you can do. <laughs> so, you know, the Chinese government is pretty adept at using technology or the prospect of foreign competition to drive reforms. Because if they just talk about reforms and have meetings, it doesn't happen. It needs to be something pressing. And that is loss of share, loss of market share. Even if it's 1% or 2%, that's uh, an outrage if you're used to 100%. <laughs> yeah. And Duncan, I want to let you go very, very shortly. But I just want to ask you one one final question, which is just that well, we first met in the days when people could still meet up doing yeah. a program on social credit scheme. And social credit, listeners will remember, is this idea of this all-encompassing one single score that scores consumers, individuals in China based on their trustworthiness, based on a number of inputs, including their e-commerce record and uh, their lending record and all that sort of stuff. Now, at the time, a private partner of the government was Sesame Credit Alipay, this sort of private scheme, which meant that if you buy good things, you get your credit go up. If you buy bad things, your score goes down. Duncan, when it comes to grand schemes like the social credit scheme, this rift between fintech and the government, does that make this sort of stuff more difficult? Is it actually more difficult than people in the West might think for the government to just direct every sector of the economy just to do what it, what it wants? Uh, well, I think, yeah, it was, we know about the social credit schemes. It's somewhat been oversimplified. And I mean, it's quite complicated. There are many different players in that. But I think what it speaks to is there is desire by individuals to demonstrate their credit. And I very personally will have an interest in this in three days time when I'm finishing my quarantine here to get my green health code, which will allow me access to travel throughout the country and, and you know, eat normally and you know, have meetings again. Stop <laughs> so, rubbing it in. <laughs> so, no, I stop rubbing it in. But I think there is an interest in individuals to demonstrate their credit worthiness, whether it be in, in their health or, or in their ability to access, you know, credit or benefits, let's call it. So I think, you know, that's a in a country of, of such a large population, people are very keen to set themselves apart a little bit, to, to be seen to be trustworthy. And as we know, in the past, that was through the family or their work unit in the ancient history of China, the modern economy. And now it's through technology. And the government also is keen, of course, to gain more information about how individuals are behaving and, and nudging the way they behave, or, or more explicitly, you know, we see people being fined for jaywalking, but, you know, you don't see as much jaywalking in Shanghai as you used to, for example, so, because somebody's photo will be displayed on a big screen. So the use of technology, of course, is always, it's a two double-edged sword, and it has benefits for the consumers. It has benefits for the government. It's finding that balance. In the area of financial technology, though, I think it's just, it's a very sharp double-edged sword. I think the government is very nervous about the damage that could be done if perhaps that power is not wielded by somebody that they are confident in or control. It's up to companies like Ant to reassure the government that they're going to work with the government in how this technology is applied. That's going to be an ongoing struggle because they are going to be rivaling incumbents, traditional banks and financial institutions that are more explicitly connected to the state. Duncan Clark, thank you very much. And if you enjoy this podcast, we always love hearing from you. So please do email podcasts at spectator.co.uk. And why not leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from? And this episode, I'm going to play you out with a special treat. Jack Ma performing at a computing conference three years ago. Oh, my, my, my.
Oh. 